You're listening to episode 133 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. We're a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 10th of January 2021 here in Norwich. And today, Steph, is very exciting because we have our next Early Career Writers Resources pack. So Simon, tell us a little bit more about what is happening in this newest pack. Yeah, so in the new pack, we are concentrating on dialogue. And we've approached it from multiple angles so that we have Hannah Berry, wonderful comics writer and illustrator, talking about dialogue in comics. We have Hemi Coyote, who has put together some top tips for screenwriters. Uh, Then we have Karis Davies, who's written about the magic of dialogue. And on the podcast today, we have Sam Ruddock, who is talking to science fiction author Chris Beckett about his book Two Tribes, which is a story that explores various issues through the kind of lens of conversation and dialogue. Maybe this is a podcast we can use to uh, brush up on our, our interpersonal dialogue skills on this podcast. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Smooth out some of the uh, smooth out some of the editing time. And this is, of course, pack number six, uh, part of our Early Career Writers Resource Packs. We've already had uh, packs on beginnings, method, character, plot and world building, which you can find over on the National Centre for Writing website, free of charge. And these packs have been made possible with the support from Arts Council England. Yeah, so the packs are associated with our Early Career Awards, which comprise the Desmond Elliott prize the uea new forms award and the law can sell a fellowship but whereas the prizes can obviously celebrate a small number of writers we wanted to make sure that we were providing resources for all writers regardless of kind of where they're at and if you're not quite ready to be submitting to prizes like that hopefully these packs can help you on your way towards that you can still find all the other packs over on the website and yeah, do go check out the, the other bits and pieces from the dialogue pack because it all adds up to a really excellent package full of really great tips. But for now, let's hand over to our colleague Sam talking with Chris Beckett. Chris Beckett, hello and welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So could you start by just telling us a little bit about Two Tribes, your latest book? Yeah, OK, yeah. Um, so I got the idea of Two Tribes. Well, a lot of it's to do with the Brexit referendum. And uh, just to sort of give me my own position, I voted uh, Remain in the referendum. And I was quite upset when the referendum went the wrong way, as a, as a lot of, from my point of view, the wrong way, I mean, um, as, as indeed were most of my friends. Um, uh, but nearly everyone I know voted Remain. And I was became very interested after the vote in two things. One is the way that very quickly... The, the Remain side, and I guess the, the Leave side as well, but I, I'm not, I wasn't party to their conversations of Leave voters, started to develop a collective narrative um, about why it shouldn't have gone that way, why the vote wasn't legitimate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also a, a collective narrative about the Leavers, you know, that they, 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 they were racist, um, they rejected experts, uh, so forth. Uh, and, and we began to tell each other that story over and over and over. I was very struck by the way that very, very quickly we sort of rolled into rolled into um, narrative construction, a mutual narrative uh, construction as a group. Um, and the second thing that really struck me after the referendum uh, is 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 this: that I live in Cambridge, which is a very prosperous t- town, um, booming high tech industry, and so on. Uh, one of the most prosperous towns in the country, 
And it's also one of the Romaniest towns in the country. I think the vote was something like 75% Romain in Cambridge. Cambridge is part of the county of Cambridgeshire, obviously. And at the opposite end of the county of Cambridgeshire is a rather poor town, which I used to sometimes visit in my social work days, a town that's seen better days called Wisbeach out in the Fens. And there the vote was 71% leave. And I was very struck by that. I mean, that that was just my local example of something you could see looking at the country in general, that the the vote was, you know, it wasn't just a a bunch of individuals making individual decisions. It was demographic, had a demographic basis. And that got me thinking about a lot of the conversations we have uh, about politics. We tend to talk about politics as if our lot are the good guys, the other lot are the bad guys. And it struck me it isn't really like that because it's so obvious that, that the reason they think that way and vote that way is because they've been brought up in a certain tradition. And I, and I wanted to explore that in relation to the Brexit vote. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm so struck by a number of things. One, you know, reading the book, I, what I loved was that it confronted me with my own um, echo chamber. It confronted me with exactly what you've just been talking about there. And one of the things that that we keep coming back to in these discussions that that you've said you were having that you know I've had with friends and seen it, pretty much everyone having around is that question of you know who aren't we talking to who isn't involved in our de- echo chamber mm. um, who whose voices do we not hear and how do we not understand mm. a different way of seeing the world and interacting with the world mm. um, and that's one of the things that both you tell here and actually which I think quite interestingly ties in with the the topic of this conversation around dialogue and conversation um and what it struck me that you do and the way you've kind of structured this book is that you're um exploring what happens when we don't talk to each other and don't understand each other through the format of sort of putting two people together who then and and their friends and family and other people around them who then do talk to each other for the first time was that a conscious decision for you to kind of structure it around conversation to to cure the absence of conversation uh yeah i guess in a way that that is exactly what i was trying to do i was i i mean i wasn't i haven't changed my mind about what i voted in the referendum i still wish we hadn't left the european union and the book isn't really about that it's not really taking sides in the european referendum it's just saying that uh, there is a danger that, you know, you, you, you start thinking about that the people who voted the other way to you are simply bad people or or du- dupes or um, ignorant people or whatever you want to think of them, that the conversation is at an end. And if you, you need to somehow accept that from their point of view, it isn't obvious that we should remain in the European Union. In fact, from their point of view, it seemed to make more sense to leave. And that's not because they're bad people. It's just because they see the world a different way. And you do need to have that conversation if you're going to function as a society. In fact, it's necessary for democracy to have an understanding that other people do think differently, but are still, but may, but do so in good faith. You know, they're not necessarily trying to be horrible. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in the, the research for that you did for this as well. Did you talk to lots of people um and have some of those conversations that are then reflected in the book and did you literally lift um sections of conversation from conversations you had with people as research was it all imagined how did you Uh, go about kind of creating that it was mostly imagined really but also just snatched conversations i had with people you know 
the guy that came to mend my boiler, very intelligent man, voted leave. You know, I chatted to him. Um, uh, you know, people I run across voted leave. I have friends who voted leave, talking to them. Uh, but also, a lot of it was about engaging in a kind of thought experiment, which I think is, you know, I think it's a useful thing to do, which is like, that goes something like this. Supposing I was, supposing I wanted, I decided to vote leave, what would my reasons for that be? And coming up with reasons for voting leave. So it, a lot of it was that. And some of the arguments, you know, I put through several, in the course of the book, I have leavers put forward several arguments for leave. Some of which I thought were quite good, and one at least one of which I've never heard actual real leavers make. You know, so I thought that's interesting. You know, I could I could have given them a, an extra argument, but um, so it was more that exercise, which I suppose you, you always have to do when you're writing a novel, which is to try and sit behind the eyes of another person and think how they see the world. And that's so it's more that kind of exercise. Of course, I also saw a lot of conversations on social media, which I, I found very helpful on every side of the argument. Everything in between, and so I suppose I made a lot of use of that as well. That's quite a good way of tapping quickly into what a lot of people are saying. Uh, and of course, I refer to social media quite a lot in the book as well. And there's also another dimension to the book which um, you haven't yet mentioned, which is that it's sort of written. I, I, I refrain to use from sort of phrases like post-apocalyptic, but from a future landscape in which people are trying to understand the present day, in which there has been, you know, some sort of well, there's been a a series of incidents that have happened as a result of climate change and there have been a series of incidents that have happened as a result of political, um, social movements. Um, yes. And you have two characters there in the future who are sort of quite often, you've got one who's dis who's writing a book based on some diaries that she's found of your two characters in the mm. present. But she's then also talking to her friends to try and understand and make sense of, mm. of that. So in that level as well, you have, rather than, it's really interesting to me that rather than sort of having a lot of exposition for the present, you've actually got further dialogue, which in, in itself serves to expose and explore and comment upon this world from a different perspective. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I think the one of the things that people often say nowadays, and people, I remember somebody saying it to me soon after the Brexit vote, they said that the leavers were on the wrong side of history. And I thought that was a very interesting comment because by definition, we don't know who's on the right side of history. You know, we don't know. If you go back uh, into the past, what people think is the direction that history is taking is so often mistaken. But also, it, I, when people say you're on the wrong side of history or that history, or history won't uh, look kindly on this person or that person is another thing that people sometimes say. And of course, my character, my main the narrator, the narrator of the story, Zoe, um, she is a historian in the future. And of course, I wanted to highlight that, that, of course, the historians in the future aren't, aren't suddenly kind of all wise and all knowing and, and, and able to come to a final judgment about what happened in the present that, any more than we can now about events in the past. Historians argue about the meaning of events in the past all the time. That's what their job is. And so Zoe hasn't got a final judgment about who were the good guys and who were the bad guys in the referendum. All she knows is that the two, the two sides in the referendum turned out to be two uh, were, were representative of two strands that or in her mind they're representative of two strands uh, or two currents in society which later on sometime between her time and ours uh, actually came to engage in a civil war which uh, which was which proved very destructive but the point is from her perspective she still doesn't know that's the, that's the that's the point of having her having a dialogue with her friends 
uh, with her friend. Um, she's not like some wise, all-knowing person, but she does know a lot of stuff that we don't know. But that doesn't mean she knows the answer to what was the right side and what was the wrong side. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting, and that kind of reminds me of of one of the the things that we we often talk about, and that um, you know come up in is sort of what is the point of having a conversation? Um, is it to express ourselves or is it to understand others um and yeah that that kind of histor historical historian historiographic perspective is one very much where she's engaging in conversation to try and understand others to try and take that empathetic um leap from her own perspective of the world to another one um yes. and that, that that comes across yeah throughout yeah. it's that that people are trying to understand each other's. And I think that was one of the things that really struck me. I mean, this, this is a book that stayed with me. It stayed with me partly because it made me feel deeply uncomfortable um, and made me feel very much that I'm maybe on the wrong side of history. Yeah. Um, in a good way, I love being uncomfortable and I love challenging yeah. Yeah. my sense of what I hear and my, my, you know, my, my assumptions about the world. And it, yeah, it did show it. It did really show me how unempathetic I can be how unwilling I can be in conversation to open myself up to understanding another. Well, one of the things uh, that I, uh, the points I make in the book is that most conversations don't serve either the purpose of expressing your own point of view or of understanding other people's points of view. Most conversations serve a similar purpose to grooming among primates. You know, that well, it's, it's a way of interacting with other people in the way that makes us both feel comfortable. You know, you know, you know, you see uh, chimpanzees in little heaps, sort of picking each other's fleas off, you know, and, and and in a companionable way, and that's that's what most conversation serves. And people so often, you know, and I was so struck with this in the after aftermath of the Brexit vote. Um, that, you know, you sit around a, a dinner table or wherever it was, and people would be telling each other things, and you thought. Surely to God, you don't think I haven't already heard that opinion. You know, we were telling each other things that we we knew that we all already knew. And, and, and I don't want, why, why do we do that? We do that. And, and it made me really, really think that we all do that all the time. And I, I'm sure people on the Leave side did the same thing. Tell each other stories that we already know uh, and kind of reassuring each other that we're right. I suppose it's akin to the akin to or actually is the phenomenon that's known as groupthink, actually, which is a way of making a group feel cozy and together by kind of ironing out any disagreements um, and people keeping quiet about any dissenting views and developing a common narrative that makes everyone feel cozy. And that's what an awful lot of conversation is about. I mean, I I have a slight tendency in conversations to want to break against that. So sometimes I will be a devil's advocate in a conversation. Even if I agree with everybody, I'll sometimes take the opposite view just to make the conversation more interesting. And I guess that in a way, that's what I was doing with this book. Do you approach dialogue in writing as different from conversation in life? I think when you're writing an ideas kind of book, like I, I write ideas books, really. My books aren't just about relationships. They're about some, They're always about something else, you know. And um, so the danger is, of course, that you just have your characters lecturing each other about things, you know. And so what you have to do is kind of dial that down as far as you can. So it does feels like a proper conversation. But I suppose the best scenes that happen when you spontaneously, you know, some of the scenes in the book, characters are talking about ideas and, you know, I just trying to make sure they don't go on too long or don't sound like they're just speaking for me, but I'm trying to make them sound authentic to their own characters. But I think the best scenes come about when um, 
it, it kind of works in a more spontaneous way. So there's the scene uh, in the Tate Gallery, for example, when um, Michelle and Harry suddenly are confronted with their the gulf between their backgrounds and, and the things that, that they consider important and the things that they consider uh, makes them, I was going to say respectable, I mean, in the sense of worthy of respect, human beings. Um, and that came, I don't know, that just popped into my mind as a scene and, and it wasn't an expression of an idea. So I think that those kind of scenes are always the ones that uh, kind of feel to me the most vivid when I write them. But I try and make all the scenes end up like that rather than people acting as vehicles for ideas and i hope i hope i you know succeeded in that most of the time anyway you have to you have to dial down the tendency to oh let's just get one more neat idea in that in there if, if you're me you have to anyway i loved i was so struck by what you said about most conversation is you know serves the purpose of grooming among primates mm. and that kind of links into what the purpose of dialogue is in your books because you don't take it you you don't take the sort of naturalistic um modernistic style of um approaching dialogue you know where we think of kind of dialogue that either is subtext free in the case of like someone like tarantino or like has the clip style of like a hemingway or a don delillo or someone or like mm. you know vernacular naturalism of irving welsh you know all of those sorts of different approaches you take a an approach which is less showy um less about style and more about both plot and character and and ideas i think all three you really push push forward in that um yes and it, it's a really interesting question i guess that comes to me because if you read it and sort of compare your dialogue to dialogue in in life there's nothing similar but it, you know they're not similar because you're not trying to capture real life dialogue no, in no. with all of its ums and ahs and kind of circular logics and all of that but what you're doing is creating a conversational style that feels absolutely right for your fictional world and for and, and doesn't get in the way of plot character and ideas being explored um yes and i wonder how much sort of um effort that takes to create such an invisible um, conversation style almost well i think uh, I think, um, well, first of all, I think all uh, novelists are doing, no, I mean, no novelist really reproduces uh, conversation as it takes place in real life because real life conversation is much more repetitive and, you know, to frankly duller than the, the conversation you read in books, you know. So we, we, we all for various reasons, whether it's for stylistic reasons or whatever, it's always heightened and the character, it's always, it's always, but the trick is to make it so it, it kind of sounds natural, even though it isn't really natural. I think that's the trick. And uh, um, yeah, I think as a, I think as a, there's a trick to that. And I, and I think I don't know, you know, I think I have to work over my dialogue quite a lot of times to get it. So it feels to me like um, it, I've, I've succeeded in that. It carries the ideas I want it to carry. It uh, it is feels true to the characters. It serves the purposes of the plot all at the same time, um, but at the same time, it sounds. The reader will be willing to buy into the idea that this is an ordinary conversation, even though the reader will know that real conversations aren't aren't so smooth as that. They're, they're much more bumpy, as indeed conversation we're having now illustrates. You know, if you did a transcript of the conversation we're having now, there'd be ums and ahs and 
moments when uh, I repeated myself and, and so on and so on, you know. But um, uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to do. And I think I've just working over things uh, and being aware of my own, what's the word, that my, the, ten, the tendencies that I have which would undermine what I'm trying to do, um, which is a slight tendency to want to overload conversation with ideas. But, you know, my favorite scenes are the ones where um, I feel that all the purposes are being served at the ta- simultaneously. So the ideas, the, the, the themes and ideas of the book are being advanced. The characters are being shown uh, and uh, the story of the book is being advanced as well. And I, for example, I think I was very one of my favorite parts of Tea Tribes. I felt I did that to my satisfaction was the Christmas, the Christmas period in the two tribes where, where you have conversations where all of those things are going on at the same time. And I, and, I, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing to know how to do it, but somehow it comes off. Sometimes I feel it comes off. It comes off for me anyway. So for you, one of the things is about feel, if it feels right to you, if it feels um, like it fits, that's what you're going for is, is a sense of, yeah, we know. You know, it's that instinctive body body knowledge almost. Yeah, it is. I can't. Yes, I could, you couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't write down a rule for it. But you 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 have to hold all those different things in balance um, and hold in your mind. You know, this is Harry talking at the moment. You know, so he talks like this. This is his sister Ellie talking. You know, um, and uh, you have to. Uh, uh, how would she talk? At the same time, as you know, I've, I've got certain ideas I want to include in the scene, and I and I want to. I want to advance the story by in, in such and such a way. So you've got to hold all those things in your mind at the same time. Well, I suppose in a way that's not that different to what's going on in a real conversation because often you're, you know, in a real conversation, you're often, um, you've got several different agendas which are juggling at the same time. Is you know, I want this person to like me. I want them to know I like them. Uh, I also want to tell them about something which I think uh, I feel like they ought to know. Uh, I also want to find out what they think about the thing I'm telling them. You know, there's, 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 there's very, you know, I'm aware that if I, if I, if I explain this wrong, they, they may not, they may not get what I'm trying to say. You know, that kind of thing. So one, one is always, even in real life conversations, one, one always has several agendas going on at the same time. And I suppose it's a bit like trying to replicate that in the writing process. You know. Yeah, that and that multiple levels in which we're conversing sort of leads on quite nicely to kind of. I want to interrogate a little bit the the social media that you mentioned earlier. What's interesting about this book is that often um, you have, because it's a reconstruction from the um, future, it's often there are sections where this conversation either, and it's either through diary, which is, you know, someone almost having a conversation with themselves through the page, mm. through conversation, i.e. dialogue with another human being, and then the kind of, conversation that we have on social media which is also a conversation it's also it involves all of those things you've just said mm. um but with an unfa- unfaced and unspecific often other what struck me i guess was that, that often those conversations look quite similar in the book and i think that actually captures something that we often think that we talk differently and obviously in the sorts of sort of you know the flow of of the words we do talk differently but Actually, in terms of the information that's being con- communicated, often that is quite similar. Well, there's not. I don't think there's all that much direct quotation from social, not direct, you know, a direct social media 
uh, dialogue, dialogue, social media is referred to a lot. And there are examples uh, of things being posted on Twitter and so forth. Um, but uh, I mean, I think we do exactly the same thing on social media. Most of what happens on social media is primate grooming, really, um, with the added twist that it's not just a group of friends mutually grooming. It's it's a whole demographic often you know we're not a whole demographic but people representatives of demographic who may not even know each other but nevertheless use social media to reassure each other that they're um the uh they're the good guys um that's one of the questions that I, what my character harry asked himself at one point are we the good guys um so uh but i think in social in social media there are a number of things that make it uh different first of all you, you can't see the person you're talking to secondly not everyone you've talked to you've ever met and thirdly the other side can intrude at any point and that is a that is something that so if you look at, at conversations on social media often little spats break out as some intruder wanders into the conversation and, and says something rude and then there's a little fight and then everyone and, and you see that happening that doesn't really happen in you know, for example, it doesn't happen in dinner party conversations and someone wanders in off the street and contradicts everything that everyone's saying, you know. So there's, you don't have to reply straight away in social media. Somebody speaks to you in real life, you have to um, you have to answer them. You can't say, I'm going to think about that for 10 minutes and then answer you. You can't do that in a dinner party, you know, but um, you can do that on social media. So that there's more artifice in social media and, and more than in real life. So you have to try and convey that. I look at uh, Twitter a lot more than I, you know, more than I should really, but and I find it simultaneously fascinating and a bit repulsive, you know. And I tried to convey that in the in the book. And you don't correct me if I'm wrong. You don't post much, do you? So you're mostly reading. I think people who are good at posting, who are good at Twitter in a kind of performative way have a particular kind of skill which i just don't have so i don't I, you know i don't do it i don't have that particular kind of quick wit that uh, i think is important for being a, a twitter performer so no i don't i'm not a great poster of things uh, but also i think by temperament i'm not a terribly partisan person i, I think writing two tribes has really made me realize this that i'm actually more interested i don't know if it's quite the right word but i'm going to say meta politics and i am in politics you know i'm interested in the politics of politics yeah, and so many things that I'm just really interested in as I've been thinking about this podcast and this conversation, just where the links between conversation and dialogue lie and mm. how fictionalized conversation for the purposes of telling a story. Do you think in a way um, that sort of pithy, quick-witted conversational style that we see on social media, and I absolutely agree, I don't possess, um, and which stops me from engaging in conversation because I'm afraid of being shown up. Um, do you think that has any impact on how we converse in the real world? Oh, well, I think I think there's some people who who have who have, people who have that skill probably also have that skill in the real world. Although I think uh, there's something a bit more merciless about social media conversations than real life conversations. So I think the kind of humour that works best in social media, and you, you also see it with things like. Um, radio shows you know you know like you know let's say let's say the news quiz or something like that on the radio or you know or in, in newspaper columnists it's, it's a kind of sarcastic wit you know um that's a kind of sar- ironic sh- sarcastic sharpness which you know some people are very good at in real life but i think in real life when you're with people 
you know and are fond of. There are other kinds of humour which aren't so easy to do, which you can't do on social media. Other kinder kinds of humour, I think. There's something rather unkind about social media. Um, you will never get lots of retweets for posting a reasonable, um, even-handed look at the two sides of an argument, or very seldom. You will easily get uh, a lot of support for a tweet which says, aren't the other lot crap and aren't we great? You know, that's basically uh, uh, how it seems to work to me. And, it, and of course, that's just to a large measure true of things like dinner party conversations as well. But when you know people and you're fond of them, you have a bit more leeway to to take other roads than you do on social media, I think. And going back to a previous point, I'm, I was really struck also by that sense of, of safety that you were talking about, that, that, that that's something we don't necessarily have on social media for instance because someone who you don't you know we're always talking to someone in front of us if we're having a conversation and we're constructing what we say based on those yes internal yes. dynamics and presumably for, to actually to have good dialogue you actually have to have in some ways a feeling of safety because without that you can't express yourself without guard and therefore be understood without guard in real life you've either got to there's two kinds of safety aren't there one is uh, I'm not going to stray into anything controversial, so there's no danger of any disagreement occurring. And the other kind of safety is I'm tough enough to be able to stray into uncontroversial areas, and I'm confident that even so, I will I will prevail, or at least I won't be demolished. And so some people are, are braver in conversations than others. On social media and in real life, I often find myself thinking, I'd quite like to express such and such a view that I can't be can't be doing with the hassle that it would cause. You know, there are certain views if I express them on social media. I mean, just even just even I don't mean anything very particularly weird views, but I just mean saying, do you know, I think the other lot have got a point about this. Would it be an example? And you think, do you know, I can't be bothered with all the feedback I'm going to get uh, if I do that. And the same in 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 life. Sometimes, you know, I listen. I, I remember the other, just a few weeks ago, I was talking to someone and somebody said something, and I thought. I really don't agree with that, but I just can't be bothered with going against the consensus now. So I just kept quiet, you know, and that's that's actually how groupthink works, you know. I, so I pick my, you know, I suppose everybody does this. I pick my battles. I don't always go along with the consensus, but I don't I don't argue every time I disagree with the consensus because it's just too, it just feels like too much hard work, you know. So it's not so much safety. So I don't think I would have felt unsafe if I'd expressed the view. I just thought, well, just feels tiring you know tiresome to every time to disagree with everything and that's what but i suppose that is a bit dangerous because that that sort of forces us into a an apparent consensus that doesn't really exist that sort of brings me back to the question of dialogue in in writing and in fiction really how mm. much do you feel dialogue in writing fiction has to has to serve a plot a character or yeah a plot particularly and how much can it be Almost as you, as you described earlier, you know that primate grooming. Can it be that in fiction? Well, I think I think I, tr I think I did try and show primate grooming going on in my in two tribes, and and uh, so I did have to provide examples of that through you know quite a few examples through two tribes. I think too much of that would be dull. It's not much of a spectator sport watching people grooming each other. Actually, so you, you can't have all that much of it in fiction. But any fiction that completely 
ignored that aspect of conversation wouldn't wouldn't be very true to life you know and i suppose there's no rule that says fiction have to be true to life and a lot of fiction isn't really and a lot and you know but if you want to represent how the human human beings actually operate in a social context you have to acknowledge that that is quite a large part of conversation that kind of mutual grooming you you see it you see it all the time you know people are constantly doing it all the time uh, offering each other things that they know the other person will agree with so that the other person can then agree you know we do it all the time you know right down to very rainy today isn't it you know but you know there's the most banal example you know um so we then get the the nice little feeling of some two of us both on the same page about something even if it's only the weather we do it well constantly um and i don't know is that does that not happen in fiction as a rule i mean i'm, I'm trying to think do you think it does or not i think it does sometimes um oh. yeah i think i think often often we can learn you know early on when we're reading lots of books about literature or things like that 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 dialogue has to either feel very natural you should go and listen sit in a pub and listen to what someone else is um someone else and then sort of write down exactly what's saying and try and capture that style or that it has to be you know the the whole Chekhov's gun idea you know that every single word that is said early on has to then be used you know if 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 there's a gun on the wall in scene one it has to have been fired by scene three even in a book like two tribes which you know the conversation is very much moving uh things forward at all times mm. um is doing so in a gentler way in a way that's sort of more a step back from the obsession with subtext and it yeah. feels more relaxed as a result and that, yeah. that that i feel that as a reader and i think that's quite an important aspect yes. for me of, of reading good dialogue is that it just it doesn't get in the way too much and it doesn't feel too much like there's an author controlling everything yes yes you don't want to have that feeling and 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 and, i mean the dilemma if you're writing about something like politics and you're trying to represent different viewpoints is that you yourself have a viewpoint both in the sense that you have your own political views or whatever it might be but also you are more familiar with one type of person than you are with another type of person so the dilemma i have with two tribes is that you know? I uh, most people I know are Remainers, but actually everyone I know it belongs to what I'm calling the delicado class, the, the sort of professional middle classes, liberal professional middle classes. Nearly everyone belongs to that class, either when because like me and like Harry in my book they were born into it, or because they've, you know, they've risen into it from um, in the course of their life. Uh, and so when I'm writing about, or I'm trying to write dialogue involving people like first of all my my other main cat my other main character michelle is a hairdresser she comes from a small town in nor in norfolk uh, and she left school at the age of 16 uh, you know obviously I'm, i've met lots of people like that but it's more it's more difficult to um to be to do justice to what that person says in a conversation uh, and one has to try and avoid making her into a mouthpiece for something that you want to say do you see what i mean but um so i found that challenging and i hope i succeeded with michelle in not doing that but you know it is a difficult thing i think to do that but yeah no dialogue can serve any purpose you you want it to do as long as the reader finds it engaging i mean uh you know there's that famous thing in um pulp fiction where the the two characters are going off to 
kill some people and they're, they're chatting about um the royale with cheese the royale with cheese of course yeah yeah which everyone remembers that the royale with cheese uh dialogue which is absolutely brilliant and, and what is interesting about that i mean first of all obviously it is interesting because it's juxtaposed with what they're actually doing so there's a kind of massive irony they're having this banal harmless conversation and they're about to do something really nasty but um but I think even if they weren't about to do something very nasty, that that whole conversation would be <laughs> deeply engaging, don't you think? He's making a kind of there's a kind of point about class and sophistication as well, I suppose, because the um, this guy's gone to Paris and he's and his idea of an exotic foreign holiday is to go into a uh, um, a McDonald's and uh, and and that uh, and find that things have got different names there. You know that is that is funny in itself, isn't it? But it's also making a kind of point. So yeah, it's quite rich actually in that way. Yeah, and that's that's just I guess the thing that that I really hear in everything you've been saying today is that 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 dialogue can be whatever you want it to be. It can serve many different purposes depending on the style of book you're writing, the type of um, yes. story you're telling, the type of experience you want your reader to have. Um, yeah. That there are no hard and fast rules and i find a lot of advice about writing can be very much you have to do it this way or you have to do it this way and there's a right and a wrong to be honest with you sam i sometimes wish i did know some rules which i could apply which would work because it is very much a trial and error thing with me and uh, that you know sometimes that that can be quite a i find it quite a, it takes me a very long time to find my way into a book and to find that find a way of telling the story that that works and um you know, it's often my early attempts are very wooden, and I know I, you know, I know they don't work. But I, I don't know, I don't know a rule that will to show that will lead me quickly to a way that will work. I, I, I've got a friend who um, talks about theatre. He's a, he's a playwright predominantly, and he talks about theatre as being solving problems through conversation. Yes, and it feels like you you do that very well as a writer. You allow your characters to sort of solve as they go along. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, well, I, the other thing I think I always find very, very important, that the particular character, if you like, that's really important to get right is the narrator. And um, often the, the I find this with short stories as well as with books, that the thing that you really struggle with is the, the, having the right narrative tone for the story, you know, and is it going to be a first-person narrator? Is it going to be a third-person narrator? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and, 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 I suppose it's the narrator, in a way, that's that's having the conversation with the reader, although the reader's not allowed to answer. But you know, but you know, it's the narrator that's talking to the reader, and 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 that is so important. And uh, to get that right, I've I've had projects which I simply haven't been able to get off the ground until suddenly I think, no, I'll change the way the the kind of narrator it is, or the way it's narrated, and bang, it's suddenly there. So that's very important to get right. But again, there's no rule, and. Uh, there's no straightforward correspondence between the content of the story and the kind of narrator that's suitable. Chris Beckett, I want to thank you so much for your time this morning, for sharing your experiences in, in this book. I want to in, encourage readers, do check out Two Tribes, do check out Chris's backlist back as well. You know, um, There's so much there to, to go back and explore. And I love reading your work, whatever the alchemy is you find it in the end and I'm thrilled and I want to thank you for your time and all of your creativity. Well, thank you so much, Samus. That's thank you very much for your kind comments. And, you know, thanks for giving me your time. It's, it's always interesting to, to talk about these things and to think, Oh gosh, yeah, I do do it that way. That gets nice. It's always a nice thing to do. So thank you very much. Nice opportunity. 
Thanks for listening and thanks to Chris for coming on and talking to Sam. If you have questions about this podcast or dialogue or in fact anything else, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre. Check out our Facebook page or sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. We also have a Discord community channel that you can hop on and talk to other writers and share your work and generally exchange tips and tricks. Uh, You can find the link to join that down in the show notes. Yeah, I logged in for the first time in a little while recently and saw that we have over 850 writers on there now, which is absolutely fantastic. There's some really great conversation going on. Yeah, it's great. I mean, if if you're looking just for people to write with during a writing session or you've got a particularly thorny problem that you're trying to resolve in your story or you're suffering from writer's block, everyone in there is a writer in some capacity at, at different stages of their careers, but everyone has some really good insight and tips from their personal experience there's a lot of talk actually on there at the moment about people who are trying to write either around a full-time job or around homeschooling or balancing all of those things which you know particularly during these lockdown periods we've got is really hard and everyone is kind of coming at it from a slightly different perspective but yeah if if you're struggling with any of those things the discord is a good place to be what a lovely supportive community Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Please do rate and review it as well, because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you next week. Mm